And one, and two, and one, two, three, four. Hello, everyone. My name is Chester Lynn, and welcome to Dark Tides. It's the end of the show. Wow, you really gonna you really gonna do that? I feel like I feel like you could just start the rumor that I'm dead. What rumor? Is <laughs> hello, everyone. I'm taking over Aubrey today. This is the last episode of, of Dark Tides. Aubrey said there was going to be three, but Aubrey's not around anymore. He doesn't get to call these shots. I Chester, call the shots. Honestly, Chester and I are tired, so we're just going to wrap it up with this one, guys. Yeah, and BJ's on Discord, so he's not real. I'm real. I'm here with you in the room. Look behind you. Look behind you. Oh, you missed me. Give me your wallet. <laughs> your wallet. For, for anyone who actually just did that, I hope you weren't in public. Um, I'm sorry. Because you look like an idiot. You look like a fool. Yeah. But you do look like a fool that's paying attention. We did it, guys. We got our audience Turn to off. do something. Well done. <laughs> Turn off your noise cancelling. <laughs> All right, Aubrey. All right. After that thing that happened just now. Yep. Ooh. No more of that, please. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we are well and truly underway with the season two finale. Yay! This is not our normal opening. Hi, welcome to Dark Tides. I'm oh, Aubrey. Dark Tides. You've heard Chester. BJ's been around. Hi, I'm here too. They play characters. I play everything else. Yep. It's nine thirty at night. We're going to record. Oh, it's probably the latest podcast. we've done. I reckon the latest is still the Christmas special. We like started the second episode, of the second part of that at midnight. I don't remember, right. and I don't want to remember. It was a year ago, and I've locked it out. I'd, yeah, I'd, <laughs> I don't remember which one, but I definitely movie. remember getting home at three a.m. one time and going. <sighs> I feel like I feel like maybe we recorded a bit late tonight. I feel. Like... Yeah, I feel like that wasn't good. Because me and Aubrey always neglect Look. the fact that BJ lives half an hour away. Yeah, and I have <laughs> and to be we, awake. We're wasting to drive time right now. That distance so. as well. Yeah. And me already just like, ma'am, oh, ma'am, big episode. All right, bedtime. <laughs> Walk bed. out of the office, lay down. That's it. And I'm, I'm, there, the I'm there with my like 1977 car trying to get it to start and they're asleep. And I'm like, ah, I just want to go home. Vroom. Got to warm it up. The, the, heater will, the heater will work by the time I'm at home. Nobody wants to hear this. You're right. Yes, they do. No, Start they don't. The Why don't they? Do it. Start the episode. Start the episode. All right. On the last episode, we had a lot of conversations, a lot of heart-to-hearts. Heath's okay now. Alistair realized he's in a, an abusive relationship with a spectral gun. I just called it. I know we didn't plan that, but that was so perfect with, like, Puck making fun of Alistair not being in a relationship and then... <laughs> I'm in a bad relationship. <laughs> like, yeah, I, 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 this is the problem. I'm... <laughs> All my time is taken up with this bad. one. And, and Dylan, then you... and Dylan was all like, what about me? It isn't fair. Yep. I don't have a body and I want my share. Of your body. <laughs> to be alive still. Anyway, uh, and then you very kindly offered to help an old man move his parcels and discovered that it was a trap. I did. Yeah, it was nice. <laughs> which was like it's a trap. Which was like, I thought it was, it was perfect because it was just like, ah, they won't say no. I don't actually have to, like, come up with a contingency. They won't say no. I'm just an old man minding my potatoes. Ah. Because I was like, oh, this must this must be the way to the next plot point. Oh, nice. I'll just walk it blindly is. into this trap. Yeah, if this was normal D&D, you would have been intimidating a shopkeeper and, like, picking a fight with some rando on the street instead of following Give the old man plot, with his Give me plots, please. Please. I feel like that's our D&D campaign that we play on the weekends. All the time. <laughs> Constantly, <laughs> like, what okay, am I DM, yeah. how do I get to the next plot point? And he's like, Well, you could do that. And then one of us runs off and does something else for like an hour. Yeah. We're like, Wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> Our D&D games is usually 
All right, enough of that. Next plot point. We need, yep. Move on. I want more story. Yeah. We're over this. It's just this is awkward pause sometimes. And it's like, yep. okay, back to the plot. I feel, Come on. Yeah, no. When, when we're playing D&D, it's like we go from, from like intense lore sessions and yep. then other sessions where I just feel like that gif of um, John Travolta in Pulp Fiction is walking to the room. You're looking around going, where's the plot? Where is everyone? <laughs> where's the plot? <laughs> what am I supposed to be doing? And then and then I, nine I, times I... out of ten, the answer is the random encounter table. It's like, what? This is the plot. It's yeah. fine. It's why my character only wants power and yeah. will do anything for it. Because it's like, ah, my default. Let's go find someone I can get power I realize from. I, I created a character that was around the idea of like, oh, well, D&D, like, there's always heaps and heaps of combat in D&D campaigns. So I'll play a character who doesn't want to be involved in combat. And we've ended up playing a campaign that has barely any combat and all like, <laughs> like this. I picked the worst character for this. Yeah. I'm, so the rest of the time he's just all floaty, floaty. Yeah, I avoid like, combat because I'm a squishy wizard and I have zero offensive spells. <laughs> I can literally just shoot a like a, a light beam into the air. And I avoid combat because I'm a marshmallow. Again, we're wasting time. Yeah, anyway, let's record the episode, everyone. Let's, let's do it because I want to go to bed. <laughs> Mr. Pop. <laughs> Deep below the tier society, three floors down in the basement level. Four floors down? Why is it four? You said four. And he said the lowest one was the fourth floor down. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Just okay. Deep below the tier society, on the fourth floor down, the elevator grinds to a halt. Alistair and Puck, you are both being held by the throat from behind. You are in fact lifted almost off the ground. You can barely breathe. You realize that your mysterious assailant from a week ago in the Utah for Salt Flats has followed you here. Uh, what's going through Alistair's head? Normally when Alistair goes into some kind of bad situation or like, you know, some, something dangerous that he's going to have to face, he's somewhat prepared for it. Like he's aware that there's going to be something dangerous or he's aware that somebody's going to try and kill him. And this has just come so... This is a complete antithesis of that. Like, he was essentially at home with people that he trusts in a comfortable environment where he was trying to wrestle with a lot of other stuff that was going on. He's just currently reeling from the shock of suddenly being back to where he was a week ago in the base underneath the salt and just trying to reset his brain as quickly as possible to combat mode even though he's completely unprepared for it and Mm -hmm. with that just comes a surging wave of fear of not only has this happened suddenly out of the blue but he's caught in such a bad situation already like this is this is normally the point where if you were in a fight you'd start to be really worried that you're going to lose and the fight hasn't even started yet and he's just trying to focus and not let those waves of fear overtake his mental processes because he needs those to be able to figure out what his next move is going to be. Basically, to sum it up, 
uh, enter surprise Pikachu meme here. <gasps> Judas. About. Yeah. Judas. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that. It's just that. <laughs> and you couple that with the fact that he's, you know, slowly feels like the veins in his head starting to swell as the circulation's being cut off. Uh, yes, you hear from behind you, Whitcliffe. I, I feel like that's a bit, you don't have to be so rough with them. Be careful. You've set this up, didn't you? <coughs> what? Me? What? No, this is not my job. It's above my pay grade, boy. And he starts wandering towards this this large open space. He's pulling one of the uh, the containers with him on the little trolley that it's on. As the figure who is holding you, Alistair, um, turns, you can see that there is another figure extricating himself from one of these crates that clearly um, they had both been hiding in. And you see as he levers himself out and stretches slightly, you see the ragged, unkempt figure of the masked man in his uh, rain cape and breathing apparatus. Great. And the whole gang's here. Fantastic. He reaches into the box and withdraws a strange chest. It's about the size of um, like a cash kitty. It's a small steel box that has a lock on it, but the lock and the box itself seem to be deeply engraved with runes or sigils that you don't understand. It's where he keeps his tea set. (laughs) It's where the teacup is. Essentially, Uh, You hear... The voice reverberating in your ears as the the unknown man holding you up speaks. Are we ready? Is it time? The whirring click of the breathing apparatus fills the air as the masked man replies. Almost time. Just hold them a little longer. And he begins extricating the other of the three crates. And you can see now that they begin moving you out um, into this large open space, into this basement level that is a perfectly circular room. You are being carried over rough stonework. And you can see that the stones here are gigantic slabs of granite. They look like they were carved from the ground hundreds, maybe thousands of years ago. That this is some kind of ancient site deep beneath London. And they're carrying you towards the center, at the very center of this room, at the very center of the stones, is one large boulder with a deep fissure cracked in the center of it. You can see now that the fissure and the stone itself are hooked up to several different electrodes and sensors that seem to be monitoring the stone. These in turn are plugged into Uh, monitor screens and computer systems that are set up on folding tables all around it. This whole space down here seems to be one haphazard, slightly derelict worksite where tests are run, different things are monitored, and also just miscellaneous storage of things that haven't fit on upper levels. Uh, Whitcliffe is still mumbling over his notes going through his book as he begins just sweeping computers and um, equipment off one of the desks onto the floor uh, and starts making room as the masked man begins to crack open these different crates. The one who is holding you forces you down onto the ground and onto your chest so that both you and Puck are laying down and he lets go of your necks um, and then 
kind of kneels down on top of you both, keeping one knee in the small of each of your backs uh, and a hand on your head just in case, as his job seems to be to contain you. You have a chance to look over and you can see that Puck is uh, very pink in the face as she's been almost unable to breathe and you can see that she's bleeding a little bit from her nose. She's kind of staring intensely at you, but you do not know what she's trying to communicate to you. (laughs) Alistair stares intensely back. He's not trying to communicate Um, anything. He's just meeting the stare. Make a perception check for me. 11. 11. Uh, You're keeping a close eye on Whitcliffe and on the masked man as they um, begin to carry blocks of equipment out of these crates, out of the first one. Uh, There seem to be battery packs, uh, big industrial battery packs, uh, as well as several computers and other equipment uh, for monitoring different phenomena. And you see very, very delicately uh, three cases. They seem to be uh, steel protective carrier cases for something very delicate. Uh, And Whitcliffe opens the first one and begins to arrange the contents and you see an object you have not seen for some time. You see the cube that took Ernest to the desert. Uh, You can see after this he retrieves the cube and afterwards the teacup that you had been sent to secure in Brixton and had been unable to get before the masked man could get it away from you. He is laying out these significant items one by one and you can see that they are glitching and blurring between layers, turning black and white with a fuzz of almost like visual white noise around them as they split and then rejoin. The next thing you see is perhaps the most disturbing. The third and final crate, the largest of them, is cracked open and instead of trying to lift anything out of it, they break the sides down. And inside you see a strange tube is obviously some form of carry container and inside you can see a body floating it looks like a young woman there are pumps and electrodes different wires and tubes feeding into her mouth from this container itself and you can see life sign readouts on there on the side of the the container itself that are registering a heartbeat and brain activity Uh, Alistair's lying there trying to take all this in craning his neck as much as he can to try and see everything that's going on and once he sees the container being opened he looks over at Puck and then kind of speaking up in a voice that's loud enough for at least the rabbit creature to hear he goes what'd you bring her here for? indicating like towards Puck that is a good question like I know I can guess why you need me, but why'd you bring her down here as well? Do you want to play 20 questions? Not really. No, I'm just curious. Fair enough. We brought her for insurance. Yeah, that doesn't answer anything. It will, don't worry. Oh, I'm sure it will. Alistair turns his head painfully, scraping his cheek along the floor as he tries to look the other way. Has this always been part of your plan, or is the whole betrayal of Tia a recent thing? Whitcliffe kind of looks up at you distractedly. He seems to have only half heard what you were saying. He responds, Huh? Oh, it was 
I don't really know what you're talking about, to be honest. I mean, I, not, I don't see it as a betrayal, really. It's sort of the next step, as it were, the next, the next development. In, uh, anyway. While you are asking this question, you can see that the masked man has fully cleared this test tube and he begins uh, to open it. He takes apart uh, a top panel and reaching in, he unplugs the tubes. He gets like arm deep into this fluid that seems to be containing the figure. He gets arms deep in and he begins to pull the wires and the electrodes and the pumps out of her mouth. And then he hauls the body out. From what you can tell and rolling with your your initial perception check, this doesn't seem to be a normal person. There's no um, hair. There's no features that are distinctive. It's absolutely a human. It's it's obviously a young woman, but it almost has the smoothness and the the unidentifiable nature of a dummy, of a doll, of something that is made but not inhabited. The masked man lays the body out on this cracked boulder in the center of the room. And straight away, uh, Whitcliffe goes to work attaching new sensors, attaching new pieces of machinery around the body trying to measure something else. He seems to be going to town on all this different equipment that is set up and you can see that there are places in the equipment for each of the significant items. The teacup, the cube, the doll. Alistair takes all this in and he's watching and trying to make sense of what's going on but he kind of continues his line of questioning to Whitcliffe. He goes, so what, the the assassination of our team was was not a betrayal? How, how do you how do you reconcile that? The man who is holding you, pinning you to the ground, leans down. Well, that was strictly business. We wanted the Morning Star out of the way. He is troublesome, and we needed you. Better to get you early if we could. So you're never planning to kill me? Well, not yet. Oh, that no, is for that's... mother to decide. And she wants to meet you desperately. That is so reassuring. It's at this point that you begin to hear a strange sound. It takes you a second, Alistair, to realise what it is, but you realise that it's an alarm going off. A very old, almost uh, air raid siren alarm going off somewhere above you, and you realise that Tear has sounded the alarm. They're fully aware that something has gone wrong, that there is a breach and you can hear this alarm echoing down the shaft of the elevator. Uh, And you can see a very old uh, red flashing light begins to turn on one of the upper levels of this big circular room. The masked man lifts his head and turns to the one holding you. Time to go. Tick the box. Do whatever you can. Buy us as much time. Kill whoever you can. As he says this, he's swinging off the raincoat and uncovering his head, and you can see for the first time, Alistair, the full extent of this breathing apparatus, of the mask that covers the whole of the head, the apparatus that covers the bottom half of the mouth and the neck. And as he begins to pull off more layers, he's pulling off 
uh, a heavy coat and underneath you can see the ragged remains of some kind of military uniform and he's beginning to roll up his sleeves and you can see before that he was wearing heavy leather winter gloves and as he rolls up his sleeves you can see black blistered flesh underneath the arms um, where his skin would normally be and he is reaching for a service revolver not unlike the one that you had picked up in the church so many months ago uh, he's arming himself as the one on top of you, the unnamed man, releases you uh, and steps back. He retrieves the box from one of the crates and begins heading for the elevators. And he says, I will see you again. Off to have a little fun with the morning star once again. He gets into the elevator and it begins to whir its way upwards. You're left now unbound. You have been relatively disarmed. You would probably have your um, switchblade handy. Probably he would not because he was in just like workout clothes, right? That's um, true, actually. So yeah. I probably wouldn't have my knives, but I have... I don't know if, I've, if it's ever come up, but Alistair has a small, just like a really small little silver blade tucked into his right sock that has, I think, been there since the start of the season. I've just never had a reason to use it. So I would have okay. that on me. But right. and probably well, my phone in my pocket. But that's you it. have that on you. Puck is scrambling to her feet as soon as she can. The masked man just levels the gun in your general direction, and he's Puck. standing between you and Whitcliffe and all of this strange, seemingly occult ritual that is beginning to take place. As Whitcliffe begins to switch on the machinery and the batteries begin to hum, Alistair like stretches out a hand towards Puck and moves towards him. He's like Puck, no. Just, it's all right. Alistair is going to walk towards the unidentifiable body that was placed on the stone. I don't know how close I can get before I get kind of too close to the, the masked man, but I want to just yeah. move towards that to try and inspect it or just try and figure out what's going on, basically. He very clearly won't let you anywhere close enough to make a proper inspection. He's keeping you several meters away uh, with the gun trained on you. Yep. But you can make uh, make a make an inspection check for me. Okay. Ah, oh, 10. You, it's hard to tell. You don't know what of this would be real science and what of it would be science fiction. But from your observation and simply what you've seen down here, it seems like this might not actually be a person. It might be be a test tube grown human someone who has been grown from dna sampling or any of these sorts of things but with no real brain activity simply just a vegetable alistair kind of realizes that and sort of files it in his brain and starts thinking about what he's heard of of mother and what gill said and what he's kind of observed which is that mother seems to be some kind of formless mind, hive mind thing. And he's kind of connecting the dots of, okay, perhaps these people are trying to build mother a body somehow. And he's trying to think about what that might mean and who mother is, because mother's just kind of been this random force up until now. You see, as you're paying attention to the body, Whitcliffe turns to you 
with this perpetual look of dull surprise in his eyes every time he looks around and sees you staring intently at the body. And he says, There's no need to worry. It's, it's really, this won't be long now. There's no point in struggling. It's, it's going to be quite soon. And once she comes back, everything will be fine. It's just a matter of time. As he says this, you see the body that is laid on the stone right over the fissure in the stone begins to glitch. It seems to be taking on the properties and the energy of all these significant items that are being connected to her through this machine. The body itself begins to glitch and split into different layers, black and white, colour bleeding and forming a separate version, static fizzing around the body as it seems to be splitting slightly between the layers. You feel this prickle of energy up your spine. You smell burning ozone. You can tell that this is beginning. Turn upstairs about five minutes earlier. Heath and Emily, you are dashing out of the cafeteria. Heath's going as, as quick as he can. <laughs> Heath's going as quick as he can. You are you are much recovered. Yeah. Emily uh, is thanks. pushing him on a tea caddy. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not quite. Um, and she is heading for the front desk of the main hall to raise the alarm. What is Heath doing? Uh, Heath is considering what he saw on the TV and trying to process the idea of it. There hasn't been an attack on London since it was called London Town. Not to this degree. Why is that happening now? At this very moment type of thing. He's trying to work out something's a bit something feels a bit off about all this you you hear emily on one of the internal phones shouting down the line um you it's almost unintelligible to you as you're trying to process this uh, and you see uh warwick comes around a corner he comes down a staircase around a corner um he's got a cup of tea in one hand and a newspaper under his arm he goes ah heath i don't think you're supposed to be out and about yet are you Working, I need my kit. What? I need my stuff. Oh. Oh, you want to do some training? I don't know if that's a good idea right now, boyo. He is going to, like, physically, like, tear the sling off as, like, I'm fine. I need my kit. Righto. Turns around and starts heading back up the stairs. <laughs> Young people today, just rushing everywhere. <laughs> I can't stop to recover. Emily turns around from the front desk. You're kind of standing in more or less the center of the auditorium of this sort of um, the main entrance way, the hall. Uh, you can see that there's like a night officer on duty, a security guard. She turns to you, Heath, and yells, whatever is going on, they're directing all of the emergency services there, South London, even the tier special forces they're sending there. Whatever is happening here, 
we're not going to be getting any backup anytime soon. So we better find your students right now. Do you know where they were? Heath brushes the, the hair out of his eyes as he's pulling off the, the dressing gown and chucking it to the side. Uh, third floor. Third floor basement. They were meeting with... Testing. They were doing testing. They were with Granger. Granger, yes. Okay, then we go there now. And she starts striding across uh, the room. As you're uh, getting to the first set of elevators, you see uh, Warwick like trundling down the stairs with a duffel bag um, and he still has his tea. Hold up, hold up. I'm coming, I'm coming. Emily, nice to see you. They get into the... The three of you get into the uh, into the elevator and you begin heading down. Okay, he starts pulling open the, the um, kit and rummaging through it. You head down to uh, the very... The, the lower floor, you're not quite in the basement yet. The third floor below where Granger has been doing the testing is um, a floor below you at this stage. Um, but this is where you have to change elevators. This is the section where the first lot of service elevators end and then on the other side of this main entranceway, there is another set. So you're basically in one large open room uh, with a number of different corridors heading off in different directions for the first level of basements. And, And you see coming out of one of the corridors, Charlotte Bell and Anne Bell. Uh, Charlotte is striding very purposefully and Anne is sort of tottering behind her trying to keep up and Charlotte is saying, why? Why can there not just be a normal Tuesday night ever? There's always something going on and it's never at the right time and there's never anyone around to deal with it. And then she looks down a corridor and sees Warwick with a teacup and newspaper, Emily with a bloody, like, sword. Sword isn't out yet. And Heath wearing pyjama pants and bandage from the waist up. She stops. She's, like, carrying a clipboard. Uh, Anne is carrying, like, an armful of books. And Charlotte sort of stops. She's wearing her, her raincoat that you can see is wet that she's obviously, just, like, just come in from outside somewhere. What is this? Whatever it is, I don't... I, we're in emergency mode, apparently, if you hadn't heard. Uh, we need to get kitted up and we need to head out because apparently there is some sort of gigantic fire golem attacking London. He looks to... He looks to Emily. I'm going to let you handle... Emily just looks at her sister and says, Bigger fish to fry. We're going downstairs. Internal security threats. And she starts moving for the... He's, he's just like, that's better than I could ever have said it. <laughs> you see, like, Charlotte is sort of processing. He goes, what level Emily is drawing her sword that you've realised that she keeps very close to her at all times. Usually, uh, it's not usually hanging from a belt. She often carries it rather because indoors it's more difficult. Uh, and she's uh, bringing this out and she says, S rank, traitor in our midst. Charlotte and Anne look at each other. Well, we're all here, except for Granger, Whitcliffe, Heath. Where is Alistair? Uh, with Granger. That's the uh, that's the the main theory at the moment. Right. Yeah. I love Tuesday nights, don't you? Never a dull moment. Uh, and Charlotte starts walking towards the the second set of elevators to go down, um, and she, she falls into stride beside Emily, who's sort of leading the way. Is Pevensey there? No, he's still downstairs too, right? No, he's downstairs with Granger. Uh, Heath, make an intelligence check for me. Or a perception check, rather. Eight. Okay, with an eight. Um, It catches your attention, even though the others are sort of talking. Warwick is sipping his tea. 
Uh, Emily and Charlotte are talking and seems to be slightly confused as to what's going on. She's sort of a little bit slower on the uptake, but you notice uh, that the little panel above the elevator, this service elevator, is flicking up, that there is an elevator on its way up. Charlotte and Emily have almost reached the front doors of the elevator. Okay, Heath cuts in between the two of them and using his arms to part them, basically pushes them to either side of the door and moves to one side as well and like gets them to line directly along. So when your first door's open, you can't see. You hear the bell ding and the doors slide open. And for a split second, there's nothing. And you think maybe it was just heading back up. And then you begin to feel a cold air flowing out. You feel a chill biting into your toes, Heath. Are you barefoot? You would be barefoot, Mm. wouldn't you? You feel ice begin to spread along the floor. And you see the lights overhead begin to flicker and dim. One by one, the bulbs pop, glass shattering and raining down to the floor. Heath is going to pull a flashbang from the kit bag over his shoulder and throw it into the elevator. All right, you do this, you swing round, you hurl it in, uh, you cover your eyes, and that's when you feel a powerful hand on your shoulder pulling you back, and you realise that Warwick has basically moved, grabbed you and Emily, and dragged you backwards as far as he can. Uh, And you realise that Charlotte and Emily are also moving back at speed, giving as much distance between you and the elevator as possible. The flashbang explodes, there is a burst of magnesium white, Uh, and an incredibly powerful crack. All of you are more or less prepared for this, so I'm not going to make any of you roll saving throws for it. Uh, As the light begins to fade, though, and you uncover your eyes, you can see that there is pure black inside the elevator. The doors are still open. All of the lights above you have more or less died. A few of them are clinging on, but there is nothing else. What? And then the light inside the elevator flickers on and there is a single figure standing. The figure just seems to be a shadow, small, almost childlike. There's almost nothing to them. They seem like a three-dimensional shadow of black standing in the light. Make a paranormal knowledge roll for me. Eleven. You do not know exactly what this is. You couldn't put a name to it but you feel a powerful malice radiating out from this creature. It basically puts your your nerves on end. It's almost like a toothache for your entire body. You just feel this malevolent presence. You begin to feel sick as your head begins to spin, just the power coming off of this creature. You hear Anne pipe up, and it's rare that actually that you hear Anne's voice. In a hushed tone, she says... It's a hunger. Charlotte puts out a hand kind of in front of all of you. Okay, everyone. This is very important. We need to spread out. Don't give it a single target. On my mark, we need to be very, very careful. But we need to get it out of the elevator. Do not let it touch you. Anne, can you help? Uh, as you all begin to fan out into a semicircle, Heath, where would you want to be in the circle? Wherever it's... We'll say that you're roughly in the centre. Uh, let's say it's you and then Emily 
on your right hand side, Warwick in the very middle, and then it's Anne and Charlotte on the end. You see this figure begin to shift a little, almost swaying as if it's been pushed by a breeze. It's small and hard to pin down. It's almost like your eyes don't want to focus on it. The light above it begins to blink slightly, flicking on and off. Uh, As you look around, you realize that Emily is drawing her sword and the black flames are beginning to hiss from it and smoke rising. For a second, you almost get this impression of figures crowded around her protectively, but they only last for a second, and as you blink, they're gone. Uh, What weapons is Heath choosing? Heath reaches into the bag and pulls out his batons that he got back from Puck, and he puts them onto his waist, basically putting them into his pyjama pockets because he doesn't have his belt on him. Mm -hmm. Uh, What type of stuff would we have in the, the kit? Really, um, there wouldn't be a gun because that would be sort of that, something you have to check in it. Yeah, the armory. Uh, you would probably have some kind of utility combat knife. You might have a couple of things like um, flares, maybe a flashbang or something like that. You would have several different charms, um, maybe like blessed oil and a few of those sort of things, as okay. well as some basic. Well, then what Heath is going to do instead? So he's got the batons. Uh, he's going to pull out and jam in his back pocket basically his knee and uh, um, forearm guards. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have time to put those on. But what he's going to be grabbing instead is basically uh, the lavender smoke bombs mm-hmm. that they usually use. And he's going to chuck one to Warwick and he's going to grab a container of small, it's almost like powder basically, um, powdered silver. So for creating silver lines and silver circles. Mm-hmm. And it would almost be like a chalk stick used for drawing more or less. circles. And he's going to roll uh, one of them to basically the person at the end of the line and the other to the other person at the end of the line. Emily is the the far right hand end, so she's next to you, and Charlotte is the other end, up to the left. Uh, you see, as you are preparing this stuff, Anne has opened one of her books... She's closed her eyes and she spread her hand over the book and then out into the air and closed her fist and you begin to see sigils burning in the air as if they are small fireworks. And then she reaches out and she puts her hand on Warwick's shoulder next to her. You've only seen this done once before. You see a ripple across Warwick's skin and then this slight squealing sound as his skin turns to steel. His whole body becomes harder than plate iron as he rolls his shoulders. He kind of uh, undoes the, the buttons on the wrists, the cuffs of his shirt so that his arms have freer movement as he begins to lower his stance and bring his arms up. With the other hand, Anne reaches out and touches Charlotte's shoulder. Charlotte has shrugged off her coat and she's wearing her what would you, is, it, is it a shoulder holster, BJ? Yeah, I think that's what it's called. You see that she is wearing her shoulder holster and she's drawing her gun and clipping a magazine into it. As Anne touches her, Charlotte's eyes glow white and stay this sort of glowing pale white. Everyone ready? Says Charlotte. Heath pulls the batons from his pockets and spins them a little bit and catches them and clicks the... Um, clicks basically the ends of them so one is a wooden end a birch end and the other is silver always ready grenades 
Warwick throws a grenade, slides it along the floor right into the elevator shaft, and as it explodes in smoke, you all begin to move forwards. Charlotte takes off first. She's moving extremely quickly out and diagonally across, and she's firing nonstop with her gun straight into the elevator shaft. Emily is dashing up very fast, cutting off any retreat to the side as she's moving into attack diagonally from the side. Heath slides in, bashing his shoulder into the wall and jamming the the basically silver chalk down and begins almost drifting, basically, in a semicircle along the room, cutting, like, trying to reduce its area of movement Mm -hmm. as the group kind of moves towards him and around him, basically reducing its area that it can move. It's not as good as, like, a silver chain, but it would irritate it to cross it. As soon as the grenade enters the elevator, you hear a deep, rumbling roar, and then giant black arms of smoke explode out of the elevator shaft, tearing into the walls. They leave craters behind as this thing begins to lash out. Dozens of arms, these sort of trailing smoke tendrils, crashing into the ground and ripping up everything. Anything it touched begins to disintegrate and burn as this thing begins to step out of the elevator shaft, smoke billowing around it. Emily is dashing in with her sword. She's trying to take swings at it, but it's not particularly effective. Charlotte is sinking bullet after bullet directly into this small shadowy figure at the centre, but it seems to be doing nothing. Warwick steps forward as something begins to lash out at you and puts his body in between. He kind of blocks it with an arm and you hear the hiss of steel burning as it burns into his skin and you hear him grunt in pain uh, as he takes the hit. Now we're going to enter combat. Can I do a quick paranormal check just to think of any weaknesses hunger have? Uh, You don't know what hunger is. You know that this thing is extremely powerful and based on what you've seen, silver is probably pretty good. Light is probably the best thing, um, but you don't know any lore about a hunger. You've never heard of this thing specifically. Yeah, okay. Another eight for initiative. We're going to go Heath first, hunger, and then the rest. Uh, Heath is going to uh, dive his hands into the bag once again and pull out whatever flashbangs or flares there are within it, just jamming his hands through all the equipment. He is going to skid the unlit uh, flashbang across the room to Charlotte mm-hmm. and he's going to pull out uh, the two flares crack one on chuck it towards the thing and crack the other one and basically put it in like Warwick's hand alright yeah Warwick grabs it and you see uh, as he begins to swing the flare in his fist as he's sort of lashing out trying to make contact uh, that these black tendrils try not to get mixed up with the light. They try to hit him wherever he isn't, so he begins to use it almost like a shield protecting himself um, as he advances, trying to push this thing back and away from the elevator. He's trying to, like, curb it away into a different corner of the room. Emily is doing the same, but she's having less success um, as she's mostly dodging and trying to keep it busy. Is there anything else you want to do with your turn? I threw threw one to Anne. Yep, all right. Anne or Charlotte. Charlotte. Right, Charlotte, uh, realising that light must be the best defence right now, begins to run. She's taking shots, trying to keep its attention, but she's helping Warwick try to pull it away from the uh, elevator shaft and into a corner. And when it's starting to move, she throws... uh, 
just to the corner of the elevator where it is clinging on to the darkness. It explodes again and forces this thing back. You can hear a hissing burn from the darkness and another rumbling roar. I, I will my second... Uh, Your second action. Second action for that. Heath is going to go to run and slide, tearing up the, the kind of bottom area of his... Uh, pajama pants and pick up the flare that he threw before and use it to basically ward it off and chuck it to Emily. Uh, Emily is beginning to have more success now. The, da- the black flames, the like dark flames of the sword don't seem to affect it in the same way. Uh, and you can see as it begins to lash out that she's having trouble defending against it fully. All right, it's the hunger's turn. Several of the tendrils begin uh, to lash out. Some of them are pulling chunks of the ceiling down and hurling them into the fray. Uh, You see Warwick take one of these chunks of masonry right basically to the face um, and get knocked to the ground. Emily manages to dodge one. Anne has been moving at the back uh, this whole time and as a tendril flicks out for her, you see it hit her. You hear a burning hiss and a scream as Anne is flung across the room uh, and it tries to wrap a tendril around Charlotte but she dodges out of the way and then it's going to attack you. No, three. (laughs) You see three of these tendrils flick out one after the other right for you but you using your vertigo ability, you just slide your body out of the way and down and below its reach, moving in closer with the flare. Everyone else's go. 11, Charlotte who already threw the flare. She moves back um, to try and protect Anne. Warwick manages to push the masonry off himself and sort of roughs himself up, gets back up and like pounds his own chest. You hear the metallic clang as he kind of almost a mirror of what you do with sort of slapping yourself as he sort of kind of like tries to refocus himself and with a roar like a bull, he just starts charging head first at one of the tendrils. And Emily has moved in to keep close quarters with you, trying to force this thing back into the corner, but it's now beginning to spread back out. It's moving into the rest of the room. It seems to be growing. There's still a flickering, dark, shadowy figure at the very centre of all these smoky arms. Um, And you're seeing now, as it begins to move across the room, wherever it has been underneath the black trailing smoke the ground is eaten away almost by acid this sort of burning hissing as it consumes everything around it Anne manages to get back to her feet as charlotte helps her and flicking through the pages of the book again she sort of sends the pages spiraling and then stops and puts her hand out and you see those sigils again burn in the air and this time there is an eruption of fire this massive gout of flame like dragon's breath roars out into the room filling the space with light it basically burns across the room and up into the ceiling as it forces this thing back into the corner that you've been working to push it into we return to Alistair downstairs you and Heath are standing the masked man between you and this very strange sight uh, as Whitcliffe is working to bring about some change in the body on the stone. What is Alistair doing? All right, Alistair is trying to think fast. He's trying to figure out exactly what's going on, exactly what 
assets he and Puck have, which is basically nothing because they're unarmed and they have no backup and they're completely outnumbered, basically. He's trying to culminate all of it in his mind and the little a little genesis of an idea kind of starts forming in the back of his mind and his mind is reeling trying to focus and figure out what to do and he looks up at Whitcliffe and he says okay so I assume you need the gun for this to work how exactly are you planning to take that from me uh, Whitcliffe has stopped working at this point and he's just watching as the body on the stone is continuing to glitch and spasm and you see that it seems to be becoming more and more intense, more and more violent almost. The smell of burning ozone and this sound of white noise is getting louder and more invasive. Uh, he looks up as you speak to him. You mm? oh, no, no. No, no, we don't We don't need the gun. Not really, no. Mother just wanted you here. Well, that's that's very homely. Uh, make a perception check, Alistair. Sure. Uh, that's a nine. You can tell that Puck is imminently about to try and rush the Masked Man. All of the telltale signs that you've begun to, you've begun to learn from training with her, a slight shifting in her, her feet position, uh, rubbing kind of feigning to scratch her arm in a way that means that she's about to try and go for the bowie knife that is tattooed on the inner side of her left wrist. Alistair turns slightly to face her a little bit closer. He goes, Puck. Yeah? Hit me. What? Hit me. Now, do it. Okay. Um, She just punches you in the face. Great. Do I pass out? Uh, make a roll for me. If okay. you roll low, then yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, she's going to have to keep hitting. Uh, 11. <laughs> ah! Come on, you're not even trying. Okay. She, like, Just steps close to you. She, like, puts one hand on your shoulder and then um, knuckle punches you, like the two knuckles of the, of the right fist, smack right into the forehead. And roll again, this time with disadvantage, because she's really trying. Uh, it's a three. All right, that'll so do Alistair, it. Alistair, whether he's immediately unconscious or not, he doesn't know, but he's clearly, given that he's asked her to do it, he's not trying to fight it. And so he crumples to the floor, kind of at her feet. Your vision sort of slows and you begin to slip sideways, and it seems very slow to you as you kind of crash to the ground. Alistair, like, sees her face kind of blurred between sort of red and black in his vision as he's about to pass out and he just says as he's crumpling down try not let them kill me and then he collapses and I hope wakes up in the liminal space where the gun resides sure Alistair flinches as his eyes open as he's lying in the inch deep water in exactly the same position that he would have fallen in. Mm-hmm. And he immediately <sighs> shakes his head, like slaps his face gently. <sighs> okay. Stands up. And uh, I, is Dylan here? Yep. He's just standing almost like a puppet with the strings cut, this, this sort of slumped shouldered stance. Alistair um, <laughs> looks at him and like kind of kind of half waves 
like you know like kind of a like if you have a slightly awkward reaction with someone in a coffee shop and you just like wave like hi sorry i'll move out of your way kind of thing it's like that kind of a yep hi and then turns away and starts running in the opposite direction of where dylan is okay sure is is dylan gonna do anything he just sort of waves back and then watches you go alistair moves you know maybe 10 15 meters away and then kneels down and puts his hands on the ground and closes his eyes and he starts concentrating he starts concentrating on a very specific memory that he's trying to call up in his subconscious a very very specific moment in time fighting to because he's trying to do this quickly but also you know he was just in a lot of pain and now he's passed out and it's very it's a lot he's kneeling he's like grabbing at the floor trying to trying to bring this moment to his mind and he thinks about the small falling apart cabin that he was trapped inside of with Winston and with Bernie mm-hmm. when they went to Shink Cove and he's trying to remember the light he's trying to remember the smell of the rotting carpet and the falling down walls and he's trying to remember the way he was feeling that day he's trying to remember everything about that room and in his kind of mind's eye he looks up at the window and places his hand imagines placing his hand on the window pane and feeling the cold breath of the creature that was outside the window and he just focuses on that the memory kind of begins to replay the cold spreading across the window you see kind of a glint of teeth and a ruffle of feathers but it is a memory you're trying to drag more out of it trying to pull something through but it's as if the membrane between memory and reality is just too thick oh, come on come on come on carrion carrion i need to speak to you carrion you feel a hand on your shoulder and a voice you haven't heard in a little while say, well, I can't quite do everything he can, but I can I can give it a go. Alistair opens his eyes and looks up. You are kneeling down in what looks like a pretty atypical American barn. There is <laughs> hay everywhere and through the door you can hear the sound of someone chopping wood and you can see a line of fences and a small barn house. Alistair turns around, trying to figure out which direction the voice came from. Uh, you can see Ernest standing behind you, wearing a very Alistair-style, like, uh, plat- flannel shirt. Flannel shirt that is uh, worn at the shoulders, and you can tell was not made for him. He's clearly found it, and is wearing it. So, hello. Hey, can you man. grab those for me? And he points at a pile of uh, lengths of wood as he picks up a hammer and some nails and starts hitting through the the main door. Alistair pauses for a second. It's like, "Uh, well, I don't have a whole lot of time. Alistair, time travels differently in here. Okay, okay, sure. And he he picks the, picks like, I don't know, like five pieces of wood up and 
starts following Ernest out the door or in the door. Okay, the, two, the you guys head out into the kind of it's. I know the the main area where all the tractors and all that type of stuff would be. It's it feels like you've gone back in tra- time because there is no technology here at all. There are no tractors, there are no cars or anything. But it's still, the area where like it's just uh, like compacted down dirt. There's no grass or anything out in front of the barn. And Ernest heads up along now onto the grass of the fields and heads up one of the the fields towards an area where you can see the fences more broken down. And as you walk past, you see Edgar off in the distance chopping wood and you see a few other people milling along this far off in the distance along the the border of this farm. You can see a line of trees and you can see others chopping down some branches of dead dead trees and pulling them along and other people walking around. You can kind of tell that there's more area outside just this farm, but this seems to be where Ernest is currently. Alistair's trying to take all this in um, trying not to be unpolite about the fact that he's really quite stressed at the moment. He's like, sort of hastens up to Ernest carrying the wood, and he's like, "Don't tell me, Canada, right?" As always, Canada. Discount America, but it's all right. He chucks down the the nails and takes one of the pieces of wood from you and starts fitting it onto the fence. Can you hold that bit there? Uh, like this? Yeah, thanks. Okay. And he's putting nails like in his mouth and starts like nailing one of the flanks to the uh, freshly put in parts of the fence. So, right, yeah, right, right. Alistair quite patiently like stands there, holds it while he puts like three or four nails in. He's like, Ernest, what are you doing? I'm fixing a fence. Fair enough. This lot need to have. Very concrete boundaries, and uh, uh, helping with that is a fence of sorts. I'm not a big fan of it, but um, this one was in a bit of disrepair, and it was a lot easier than building a new one. So, you have a Alistair-sized problem, I am assuming. Don't I always? Ah, uh, well, I mean, what you do in your personal life is your business. Um, but yeah, so... You're also, just to put your mind is you are not currently here. I am putting up this fence on my own. And it just looks like to everyone else, Ernest is talking to himself again. I'm sure they're quite used to that. Yes. Yeah, well, uh, currently my personal life involves a couple of maniacs in Tears' basement trying to grow a body for Mother. So, you know. Ah. I mean, it's not uh, Canada, but it's... Alistair, can it's you lift a, it up a It's a fun more? time. <laughs> <laughs> Just, just a little bit, lift, lift up a little bit more. Yeah, it does sound oh, pretty... Yep. Yeah, thanks. That uh, sounds pretty hardcore, man. Yeah, man. So so what are you going to do about it? He's, like, finally taking all the, the nails out of his mouth. Uh, well... There we go. Um, that, that part of the plan hasn't quite formulated yet, but mm-hmm. I needed some time to think. So I, um... I got Puck to punch me a couple of times. Solid plan. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Pent up aggression and all that. Yeah, yeah. So you can't. What you can't just call on your tank, blow him away. S- oh no, you somehow- said something. Like, didn't didn't the other guy have one? Isn't that? Is it like? Is it like Pokemon if you got two fire types? Like that doesn't work. Sorry, I'll let uh, you talk. 
it's more that I am not really able to trust him anymore around these people. Mm-hmm. And I'm worried that he'll either just not cooperate like he did last time. Oh yeah, that's a whole thing. Heath nearly died. He's okay though. It was a rabbit. That's... Anyway. Yep, right. Mm-hmm. I'm worried he'll either not cooperate like that or worse, he'll decide that Mother's body is a more powerful one, and he'll uh, turn coat, you know, change sides. So, yeah. I was hoping I could find Carrion and uh, get him to remove Dylan from me so that they can't get him. But, um. Right. Hey, at least well, I got Canada. Yeah. Well, Carrion wouldn't be able to. To do that. Also, that's not Carrion's type of thing. He, Dylan is a lost thing, yes, but he is not within Carrion's jurisdiction, quote unquote. Um, yeah, I was afraid you were going to say that. Listen, man, I, I had like 20 seconds to think of this plan, okay? I'm doing my best. Yeah, do you, want me, to, do you want me to hold this one up? Yep, next one. Yep, okay. Alright, now, here's the thing, Alistair. Now, another one. <laughs> so, <clears throat> okay, I'll take this out. No, so, no, put it in, because I'm going to have to hold it otherwise. Put the... All right. So, the thing you need to understand, and uh, we, we kind of talked about this a little bit, but... And you did suggest this, which I hadn't thought about the fact, but... Dylan chose you in that room. There, yeah. were, more pow- there were more powerful people around. Heath is more powerful. That other guy, the mask guy, he's more powerful. Hey, hell, like, if they wanted, like, sheer strength, Puck. I've never been uh, a w- one for trusting the gun, uh, trusting Dylan, because I know a little bit more of the concepts around it. But may I be <laughs> also the first to say that I, I told you so? Yes, uh, yes, thank yes, you for yes, pointing yes, that out. Yes. Just want, just want you to be aware of that. But. <laughs> Uh, and he points out along the boundary of the farm and you look out again and see the handful of people pulling in chopped off tree branches and some with like baskets of apples and stuff. And so they are the most unlikely bunch ever to be together, to be with me, anything like that. But there is always an attraction there is always those who need each other will be brought together. And yeah, you can't trust Dylan. But here's the thing, Alistair. Tools are tools. And he kind of like gestures with the hammer a little bit as he nail puts in the last nail. And yeah, it gets a little bit more complicated when you've got a soul in a tool. But you were the one who pulls the trigger. You were the one in control. And if Dylan wanted power... He would have chosen power. Dylan is power. Opposites kind of attract in a way. Listen, here's my two cents on it all. And this is from just my what you've really told me. But yeah, you could consider it that maybe Dylan chose you because he thought he could manipulate you. But maybe he chose you because you were different. Maybe Dylan didn't want 
someone powerful or someone to manipulate. Maybe he just wanted someone who would fight for him. And even when things don't look amazing, when you're going into the valley on your own and all that type of stuff, you should remember the fact that you don't need to call on a mystical beast to save you. You have friends, Alistair, and you should call on them. Thanks. No, no, thank you, and he steps back from the, the fence. Looks pretty good. Put, yeah, no, I need to put a gate on over there. I wish to God I had a level. He like gestures at, and you see is the most unlevel, unstraight fence <laughs> you have ever seen in your life. <laughs> Every different Ooh. like post in it is slight in a slight different direction. As like, <laughs> it has a Pinterest charm to it. I would say it's just bad, Ernest. It's just bad. As I'm much sorry. As I can do. I'm your friend. I wanna I wanna support you in your endeavors, but it looks like a fence that was made in New Zealand. Yeah. Well. I don't know, I'm not dealing with sheep at least, I'm dealing with bloody... Oh man, you have no idea the amount of fights I've had to break up just this morning. Yeah, yeah. and I think I've got it tough. Yeah, you got puck to deal with. Just punching you in the face the whole time. I know, terrifying. At least, at least she did it because I asked this time. That's mm. changed from normal. Anyway, um... Yeah, I should probably, um, you know... Yeah, get back to it. Yeah, good chat. We should get coffee next time. The farm around you begins to fade as a wind sort of blows in and it tosses Ernest's hair and the grass around you and you feel it kind of strip away this image and you are left in the black pool of water that is your subconscious and then very quickly you feel yourself being pulled out of that too as your consciousness tries to rush back in and you sort of jolt back into wakefulness on the floor of Tears basement just in time to see Puck drive her bowie knife right into the throat of the masked man as the gun fires just above her head as she has tackled him uh, around the waist and stabbed him. Damn it, Puck. <laughs> Alistair is going to... He's not even going to think about the gun he's not going to try and communicate with Dylan like he normally does he's not going to try and ask for his assistance Alistair instead just props himself up on one shoulder the fastest movement he can manage given that he's only two seconds conscious again and he whips his right arm around to face towards the masked man holds out his hand as though he's holding the gun and pulls his finger back as though he's hitting the trigger. Does the gun appear? Yes, it does. You feel the familiar weight in your hand. You feel air contract and then expand as the gun fires. Uh, roll an attack roll for me. Actually, we'll roll for, for sync first. Uh, well, I got a seven. Uh, well, I think you, the, you just have to get above a 12 between the two of you, right, yep. for the sync. He got an yes. 11. Okay. Uh, Alright, roll a d20 to hit. 15 to hit. Absolutely hits. That is 12 damage. Puck hurls herself to the side but doesn't have time to withdraw the knife. 
your shot takes him sort of in the upper chest and there is a resounding boom as he's flung across the room. He tack, uh, topples over one of the tables of equipment and crashes to the ground and skids away. Uh, Whitcliffe sort of panics and is sort of fretting around. And as you look up, Alistair, you see that this glitching effect that's happening to the body has got worse and worse and you can feel the air pressure in here changing. You can feel as though air is growing thin and the whole space is just filled with this vibration of energy and this overwhelming white noise. Alistair, without missing a beat, like pulls out, fires the gun, sees all that as he's scrambling to his feet and I'm going to just instantly roll a second attack on the mast figure, like just a second shot, like bang, stand up, bang again. Sure, yeah. So that's an 11 for symmetry. Uh, and a six, so sure. Uh-huh, I only rolled a three to attack this time. It's a strange feeling because you are expecting him to move. You're expecting him to get back up again. Um, but you have shot him, and where you kind of level up and expect him to be already on his feet and moving, you actually go to squeeze the trigger and then stop yourself because he's still on the ground. Uh, and as he begins to roll and shuffle, you're training the gun on him. And then Does, as he did he drop his gun? Um, let me roll. Anything lower than a six? No, he still has it. Okay. Uh, Alistair, realizing that, flinches for a second and then, you know, chooses not to pull the trigger. And he moves forward up to where Puck is. And he goes, you couldn't have waited for me, really? Th- things happen faster, all right? Not all of us have time for a nap. Yeah, well, um, I was in Canada. I still came back. What does that mean, Alistair? <laughs> I'll tell you later. Does she still have her Bowie knife? No, it was lost. Okay, uh, Alistair's going to reach with his left hand into his... Like, he's going to crouch down, reach into his sock and pull out the silver blade and hand it to her. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. You're welcome. As you watch, the the figure begins to roll himself over and then back up. He's sort of on one knee and beginning to try and rise. But you can see that you've hit him right in the chest, in the apparatus itself, and it is beginning to fall away in pieces. And he seems to be clawing at it as if it's malfunctioning and he can't breathe. Um, he tears, he tears off the faceplate, uh, and you can see you can see deep set eyes uh, with dark circles underneath them. You can see mottled uh, skin, almost blued with cold. And he begins to tear at the lower part of the face of the mouth um, and the neck, trying to pull the apparatus off where it seems to be stopping him breathing. And as it does, I want you to make a fear save for me. Ooh, okay. Uh, is that just a d12? Just a d12, yeah. Plus two. So three. It takes you by as surprise. I rolled a one. Plus two. Oh, plus three. <laughs> yeah, you cannot take your eyes away as he begins to wrench at the apparatus around his face and his neck and pull it away. Um, and it you've shot him in such a way that it's burnt away a good chunk of his shirt that it's mostly rags around him. And as he begins to tear away the machinery, you realise the machinery wasn't something he had on him. It's part of him. And he's tearing it out of himself. As he begins to pull it away, you realise that there is no bottom jaw to his face. There is just the top half, and there is almost no neck anymore. There is this one big wound from the top, from his front teeth all the way down to his chest cavity is one large gash that has turned black with age and rot. 
you can see that his rib cage is almost hollow and shrunken in. Uh, the skin on his arms are frostbitten black. And as he's trying and wheezing to pull himself to his feet, again, you realize that this is a dead man walking. That burning green fire that had been behind the glass eyes was not light. This is actually burning green deep in his eyes. And the same burning green is sort of illuminating his chest cavity from the inside. You are too startled by this to react quickly as realizing that he's lost control of the situation. He slams his hands into the ground, driving them down as far as he can, and you begin to feel the sensation of the earth shaking and cracks splitting as he begins to raise the dead. 